I grew up very proud of my dad, very proud of like who he was as a person. And then we went through this transition where I started understanding more about the military and really questioning everything about his life and what he'd been willing to do or not do. Activist and author, Adrienne Marie Brown. It all came to a huge head where my dad was working in the Pentagon and they were in a, you know, winding up for war in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And we ended up in a car together screaming at each other, both of us, that the other was a terrorist. And I ended up getting out of the car and we went for a long time without talking. Welcome to season two of Awaken, a podcast from the Rubin Museum of Art that uses art to explore the dynamic paths to enlightenment and what it means to wake up. I'm singer and songwriter Ravina Aurora, and I've been learning about the transformative power of art throughout my life. Since time immemorial, art has been used as a portal to better understand ourselves and the world around us. At the Rubin, a museum dedicated to art from the Himalayas, we believe art can inspire us on a path to awakening. And in this series, we're using a specific artwork, the mandala, to explore this journey and the emotions that accompany us on the way. But what is a mandala? A mandala is a guide. People from many cultures and religious traditions around the world use mandalas as maps to navigate their inner lives, including their emotions. Throughout this series, with the guidance of scientists, Buddhist teachers, writers, artists, and activists, we wrestle with five challenging emotions. Anger, pride, attachment, envy, and ignorance to help us take a new perspective on how emotions can influence our day-to-day -day experience and what they might be able to teach us if we get curious. In this episode, Pride. Zogchen Panlap Rinpoche is a leading Buddhist teacher and one of the foremost scholars and meditation masters in the Nyingma and Kagyu schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Pride. It's really an interesting pleasure here. Pride is closely connected to ego, self-centricity. And pride is primarily kind of like a misperception of or exaggerated perception of one's own positive qualities and looking down on others as not having so much of such qualities. Kleshas are the afflicted emotions that cloud our view. But each has a powerful and life-altering antidote. For pride, it is the suspension of judgment of yourself, of others. Openness to all that is, with curiosity and a balanced perspective. Pride can be positive in a sense that if we can be truly confident of our own self, self-confidence, if we can truly appreciate oneself, like self-acceptance, that kind of pride is a very positive thing. True acceptance of self, you know, like who we really are. 
In this episode, we explore pride in all its forms. Psychologist Tracy Dennis Tawari is a professor of psychology and neuroscience. We think of emotions like shame and pride as not being inborn emotions at all because they're socially constructed. And the simplest way to think about that is an emotion that's socially constructed is very dependent on the values of a given culture or historical period. So you're prideful about things that you have learned in developing in a certain society are worthy of being prideful of. You have these kinds of experiences in reference to a developed sense of self, which also develops in a context, in a culture, in a historical period. And so with pride, I'd say, you know, you have to have as a starting point the appraisal that I am a self, right? I'm an individual self. And a self uh, that has agency in the world is a valued self. So you are appraising in the moment, is this sense of myself as a positive, powerful self, is it being threatened or supported? Right, that's the appraisal part. Like, just how is the world connecting with my sense of self? This is really interesting because not only does pride exist in the context of what is expected societally and culturally, but it also sets clear boundaries between you and others. Pride thrives in judgment. Activist and author, Adrian Marie Brown. When I'm judging, it's like I have a predetermined idea of what someone is supposed to act like or be like or what the success would even look like. When I let that go, all of a sudden I can be present for what's actually possible and what's actually happening which is often much more interesting than I could have predicted and which is often much more moving because it's rooted in the authentic experiences of the people who are living through it. We all live inside of a system that's actually pretty difficult to navigate um, emotionally, financially, spiritually, physically. And when people are struggling with that, sometimes they turn to drugs, sometimes they turn to alcohol, sometimes they turn to sex work as a mode of survival and, and other things. And It very early on, for me, helped me normalize that I'm not better or worse than anyone else. And the the good news is that I can be in it, you know, that it's like my work is to like keep trying, keep learning, keep experimenting with this thing called life, as Prince said. When you have this uh, misperception or the wrong concept of oneself and believing in that, then that creates this sense of big uh, separation between self and others. And this is where pride can be so challenging. Adrienne Marie Brown has explored the ways in which organizations can be more collaborative, more cooperative, and less entrenched in competition, which is often founded in pride. I think if you are raised in an environment where competition is how you establish your right to exist and your worth to others, then I think that's where we end up with that kind of, okay, I have to be boastful. I have to project a confidence that I may or may not actually have, but I have to project that. I have to seem as if I know what I'm doing. And I think that's when we end up in the danger zone. And it's one of the reasons actually, you know, I, I identify as a post-capitalist and I identify as a post-nationalist because I feel like the systems 
of this nation state, the systems of this economy, actually the tendency is towards that competition and cruelty that keep us from attending to each other as human beings, as as systems where care is actually the only thing we need to <laughs> be attending to. We have this incredible opportunity because it's such a salient, powerful emotion to dig deep and reassess, well, what is it that that forms the basis of our self-value? It's rather, what's my purpose and my purposes in life that make me feel most myself, that give me the greatest sense of meaning, that helps me hitch into something that's greater than myself and elevates me. Is my pride based on my ephemeral achievements or is it based on what difference I'm going to make afterwards when, I, when I'm gone? And I could die tomorrow, <laughs> you know? I mean, I could be hit by a bus when I walk out of this building. And are the things that I'm prideful about, are they going to survive? Are they sustainable? Are they meaningful? Will I, like, will it have mattered that I was in this world? I do think that we're all given various kinds of work to do in a lifetime. And where there's great pain, that usually means there's great healing that needs to happen, sometimes intergenerational, sometimes ancestral. And if we can release ourselves from that sort of punitive policing uh, slavery area practice of judging each other and trying to determine who belongs and doesn't belong, then we can soften in and see we are all shaped by this structure, these societal structures that are designed to keep someone else in power. And it's one of the most liberating ahas you can have. It's like, I don't have to participate in structures that are designed to give other people power over me. I can actually figure out with other people, what does it look like to create structures for ourselves and not judge ourselves for needing care, not judge ourselves for needing medicine, not judge ourselves for needing mediation, for needing therapy, for needing help, for needing support. You know, during this pandemic, I've had a lot of people in my life who needed support, like, you know, financial support to get through it. And thank God that they were able to ask for it, which comes in part because they're in community with people who have relinquished judgment. They know it's like, there's nothing wrong with you for not having stored up a gazillion dollars to get through a global pandemic. We're not better than each other. We're just positioned in different places for different work. I think of pride as this fraught emotion, but one that has, if we can bear to look at ourselves and really face what we're prideful about, to be an emotion that has incredible potential for transformation. Then there's the other kind of pride, the one that comes when you do things that you or others didn't think you could do. The big and small accomplishments that happen every day that deserve your pride. The type of pride that is akin to rejoicing, a space of revelry and celebration of the moment, not judgment of it. Here's Nora Wood, the 10-year-old daughter of Awaken's executive producer. Pride is being proud of yourself. I mean, at least that's what I think it is. It's when you feel that you've accomplished something and you feel that you've done it the right way. Like, let's say you make a cake and 
most of the time your dad helps you with it, but this time you make it as a surprise for his birthday. And at the end, you'll feel really proud because you did it by yourself. I mean, I know I am a child. I mean, I'm 10. So um, it may seem to you adults like, oh, making a cake. Yeah, so easy. But yeah, I'm mostly not allowed to use the stove or oven, so. I see my nibblings you know, my sister's kids and the children of my friends. And that feeling of having accomplished something that they didn't know they could do. Like, I am standing up, you know? Um, That kind of pure, what I think of as child pride, like a little childlike pride. And then I think of ego pride. Like, (laughs) you know, I think of the times in my life when I've been like, got it, I figured this all out and everyone needs to listen to me, (laughs) you know? I heard this story when I was like four, so I don't really remember it, but I'm pretty sure this man, or I just call it this person, wanted to fly. So they went and decided that they were gonna make wings out of wax and the wings start working. But as he becomes farther away from earth and feels more powerful and like, more than what he is, he starts flying higher and higher, closer to the sun, and the wings melt, and he dies. (laughs) He falls and dies. Stories about pride surface in many cultures. Like the Greek myth Icarus describes, if you become too proud, you can get very hurt, and some part of you can die. And Buddhism teaches that a delusionally proud person will inevitably be brought to humility. Both warn that a relationship with someone you love dearly can be challenged. For Adrian, this happened after 9-11. My father was in the army for 30 years, all of my growing up years. So we were a military household and He was particularly the chief of war plans at the time of 9-11. So he was working in the Pentagon. His office was destroyed in the 9-11 attacks. He was away from the office. But I thought he was gone most of the day of 9-11. And then we came back together. We were spending time together as a family. And over the months that followed, we really split from each other even more intensely politically than we ever had before. And that had been happening as I'd been getting my political education about what is the military and what is colonization and what is occupation and, you know, how does the military function in the world? I had a lot of critiques. (laughs) And then it all came to a huge head where, for me, I looked at what happened during 9-11 and I, I thought, we need to try to understand what led to this result, what, how we could end up with people feeling that they needed to take this kind of action, and what is our responsibility? How can we change the conditions so that something like this can't happen again? And my dad was working in the Pentagon, and they were in a, you know, winding up for war in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And we ended up in a car together, screaming at each other, both of us, that the other was a terrorist. and. I ended up getting out of the car and, you know, we went for a long time without talking. 
When it comes to a life-changing event that threatens our sense of security, we may act in ways, at time prideful ways, to give ourselves some sense of agency and safety. It can be an attempt in finding stability when there doesn't seem to be any. When we are in a prideful state, depending on how we view our sense of self and our value, we do things to sustain, you know, at sometimes at any cost, that sense of being a valued self. So, for example, we many of us believe that being a good person is a really central part of being a valued self and a, the kind of self that we should be in the world. So people are motivated to do all sorts of things, sometimes terrible things, to sustain the belief that they are a good person. Uh, so if someone tells you, hey, to save the world, you need to do this terrible deed, but you're a good person, right? You're, you know, this is a righteous, you know, this is a righteous cause. People will do all sorts of things that objectively are not what a good person does to retain that integrity. Uh, my mom said it wasn't quite the year that I remember it being, but it was a long time before we were able to really communicate in a civil way again and hear each other with love. And I think pride came in in a few ways. I think there's the pride that that had fallen away in the first place. You know, my my I grew up very proud of my dad, very proud of like who he was as a person. And then we went through this transition where I started understanding more about the military and really questioning everything about his life and what he'd been willing to do or not do. And you know, he had felt very proud about his work and his worldview and his community. And I think was kind of devastated when I came home throwing all of that back at him. You know, I think there was a period of like, you do need to respect me. You know, I, I made these choices for you. I made these choices for our family. But neither of us could see past our perspective in that moment. I really felt like <laughs> me singularly alone talking to my dad is how we're going to stop this war. Like, I have to, I have to do this. I have to stop it. I have to say the right thing. And I felt like such a failure because I wasn't saying the right thing and I wasn't having the impact I wanted to have. And of course, now I look back and it's like, that's not how you stop wars. <laughs> you know, um, that's not, I know so much about organizing as a communal and collective act. But at that time, I really felt like, you know, there's an individual opportunity here that I have to fulfill. There's a destiny that I need to fulfill. And I was really frustrated with myself that I couldn't pull it off. When we look more closely, pride may be surfacing because we're feeling frustrated and we're trying to somehow find a way to make ourselves feel superior so we can avoid that frustration. But the counterpoint to pride is equanimity, the ability to hold seeming contradictions together, seeming differences. In reality, we are no better and no worse than anyone else. And when we see ourselves as connected, our world expands and we may even have a stronger impact. The wisdom nature of pride, or the essence of pride, is what we call the wisdom of equanimity. So wisdom of equanimity is a one-test experience of wisdom. A one-test experience seeing that there's a sense of 
sameness between you and the others. You know, there's a sense of no separation, so to speak. You know, if we look at it from a very simple uh, relative point of view, there's a sense of no separation between you and other as being a human, for example. We are all human. You know, we're all the same. I feel like I'm now bringing that lens to as many places as I can in my life that I'm like, I'm not a good person, I'm not a bad person, I am a human. And as a human, I am trying to learn how to be in relationship to other humans and in relationship to this planet. And I won't do that as a perfect saint. I will still be a human the whole time. And it's so relaxing actually, like to stop trying to be a saint or stop trying to be perfect and instead live my life (laughs) and live a life in which I'm like, what I wanna get good at is being in an accountable relationship with the other people in my life. And what I want to get good at is being in an accountable relationship with the planet. And that's actually doable in my lifetime. I'm doing it. I'm learning. So I think that's the other thing that happens is this equanimity allows us to actually be in the world as it is. That's what we're all going for, hopefully, to be able to hold opposing views, to care for one another in the process, and to do good in the world. Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg has such a wonderful way of illustrating this. But the way they use the word equanimity reminds me of when I was practicing loving kindness intensively in Burma, and I was working with my Burmese teacher, Saira Upandita. Uh, he would at times give us like almost like little pop quizzes, you know? One day he said to me, let's say you're walking in the forest and in the formal work of loving-kindness meditation, you work with various categories of beings, you know, and those you're close to, those you're not so close to. So he said, you're walking in the forest, and it's you and your benefactor, someone who's really helped you, your friend, your neutral person, like someone you hardly know, you don't really, you know, have a view of, liking or disliking, your difficult person or an enemy, and this bandit comes up to you and says, Someone amongst you has to die, and who it's up to you to choose. Who, who are you going to choose? So I've been practicing very intensively for about six weeks at that point, had spent hours and hours and hours offering loving kindness to every one of those categories, including myself. And I, I closed my eyes, and I, I just realized I can't make a choice. Like, everyone seemed equal to me. So I said to him, I can't choose. And he said, not even your enemy. And, and I, you know, I tried again, I closed my eyes, and I genuinely could not say, you don't count, you know, or I don't care. So I said, no, I can't choose my enemy. So he said, not even yourself? And I thought, uh-oh, I'm going to fail this quiz. Because, you know, I just couldn't find the place in which I did count. And we just all seemed equal. So I said, no, I just can't do that. And he didn't say anything. And I left, and I had this text in my, this ancient Buddhist text in my room and uh, grabbed it right away as soon as I got back to my room and looked it up and sure enough, you know, from like 2,000 years ago, there's the question uh, say you're walking in the forest and, and there are all these people, who can you choose? And it turned out I'd given the right answer. We need to be scholars of belonging. 
right? Like, what does it actually mean to belong to each other? The idea of being superior towards each other has done a lot of damage to us and created a lot of ways which people are like, oh, this is my identity and it's better than yours. You know, it's like, there's no truth to it anywhere, right? So far, there's no scientific basis of saying anyone's better than anyone else. But we try to create these monolithic identity spaces and have that be the way we experience belonging. And it doesn't work. There's a sense of sameness. There's a sense of one taste because we all experience suffering and we all don't want suffering. We all want to be free and liberated. And so there's a sense of one taste here of experience. But ultimately speaking, the one taste wisdom Wisdom of equanimity is seeing the reality. You know, seeing the reality that all things in its nature are equally uh, lacking existence. Equally do not exist. Right? Shunyata, we talk about emptiness in Buddhism. And so wisdom of equanimity is actually seeing that kind of shunyata or empty, uh, emptiness reality uh, in which everything is equal. Equanimity. This is the teaching that pride has to offer. This is what it really comes down to. Suspending judgment so that you can recognize the ways we are all fundamentally equal and therefore more connected. When we feel connected, We want to do good to be kind to each other. What would the world look like if we were consistently cognizant of the fact that we are all inextricably connected by the virtue of us being human together on this planet? I was re-watching Scandal and just noticing how I'm like, oh, there's this storyline of like, the more privilege you get in some ways, the more it shrinks your possibility of who you get to be and how you get to be. So you have this pride of success that may or may not have been tied to any labor that you've done, but then you have to constantly be policing and adapting and compromising in order to maintain that success. Meanwhile, there's folks who are outside of those spaces and not particularly proud of anything. And the saddest people that I have met in my life are those who would be seen as having the most privilege. I actually think a lot of what happens, particularly with systems like white supremacy, is that that lack of belonging becomes its own violent, self-sustaining force. So you see these folks who are like, I want to be powerful. I want to maintain this privilege at all costs. But then there's this deep loneliness, this deep depression, and, you know, imposter syndrome that makes it really hard to enjoy (laughs) your privilege because there's some part of you that knows this isn't real. I want to belong as I am. I want to be loved as I am, which is fair, which everyone deserves. Pride, of course, isn't all bad. And from an evolutionary perspective, it has a reason for being. Tracy Dennis Tawari. I mean, one thing, too, I want to say about, and this is a stance that I, I feel is is important to have in discussion as we look at the, the intersections and also differences between psychology and spiritual traditions, is every negative emotion or difficult emotion is a double-edged sword. 
So there are costs to envy, uh, pride, anxiety, but it wouldn't have evolved with us if there weren't some potential advantage to be had. And, you know, people often say, oh, well, if it's evolutionary theory, you just mean survival of the fittest. But but it can be more than that, too. I do think there is some sweet nature of pride. And then I think the, the one that I, um, where it's sort of like, oh, I know everything, you know, I'm not sure if that's based in nature or if that's based in the competitive structures of our current social systems, right? Where it's like, Knowing something is how I establish my value in the world, so I better know something. And like the faster you can get, you know, expert in something, the more the more guaranteed your survival is these days, right? Like nothing is nothing is just given to you for being born. It's like you either have to work for it or you have to have come into it. And we live in a really strange period right now where there's a lot of people who are really proud without having any skills behind it. <laughs> So everyone has judgment. Everyone judges all the time. And the invitation in, in for me in the practice is, it's not to give up who I am. It's not to give up noticing what I notice, but it's changing the importance I give to what I notice. And it's calling myself in around the power dynamics of what I'm noticing and how I'm noticing it. Non-judgment in interpersonal dynamics, it softens my whole spine and my gut that I'm like, oh, I don't know better than this person about the decisions they need to make for their own lives. I I am not living in their body. Their body is giving them data. I'm not living with the compromises they've made. I don't know and I don't control and I don't have to control any of that. But if I'm curious, I can learn with them as they learn something about this experience of life that's different from what I'm learning. And non-judgment gives me so much room to experience more life. Like I literally get to experience so much more life because instead of sitting in judgment, for me, I go to curiosity. You know, and I love that the, at the equanimity part because it's like there's so much balance, you know, there's so much ease. There's another kind of pleasure that comes from it. But fundamentally, I really feel that curiosity is at the heart of it all. That I'm like, oh, well, why did you do that? <laughs> you know, huh? Like, how did you reach that conclusion? And I'll say it's easier to have some curiosities than others. Curiosity creates possibility. When we're curious about things, that's what a pilgrimage is. It's a journey that you take because you're curious. It's an inquiry. And, and that is... I think really where the intimacy comes from. It comes from this suspension of knowing, um, an openness to answers or to more questions, just this kind of openness to the world. Curiosity creates possibility. Author, filmmaker, and Zen priest, Ruth Ozeki. You know, certainty, like knowing, certainty really is a kind of wall or, or barrier that protects us from that kind of intimacy. It prevents that kind of intimacy, and it also prevents the exposure to anything new. 
Um, it, it, it's a kind of a almost a reification of a sense of self, and it creates this distance between yourself and another person. It deflects, in other words, it doesn't welcome, but it deflects. And you know, anybody who's been explained at will understand that. I think that's why Rebecca Solnit came up with that word mansplaining, right? And this is something that my husband and I do to each other all the time. We're constantly mansplaining at each other. And one day we tried an experiment whereby anytime we felt compelled to make a statement or to, you know, explain something to each other, we turned it into a question instead. And it was a remarkable exercise because I felt this, you know, physical sensation in my, you know, in my, in my gut, in my heart, you know, of being welcomed into conversation rather than deflected. It's a wonderful thought experiment and I totally recommend it. There are all kinds of ways to experiment with relinquishing judgment. The Mandala Lab at the Rupin Museum does this beautifully. I think one way the Mandala Lab is important is that it, it, it really surpassingly well helps us take this first step of engaging with our emotions without shame and judgment. Imagine that you are holding a token in your hands like a poker chip, and you are looking in a mirror. There are four long tubes in front of you, each with a slot at the top. You have a choice to make. So, you know, with the part of the installation where you have to note what you're prideful about, and you can, you know, kind of put your tokens in the, in the appropriate bin, it's just, you just have to look at it. One, I think I am better than others. Two, I feel proud of achievements I haven't earned. Three, I think I'm worse than others. Four, I feel proud of qualities that may cause harm to others. Which do you choose? You have to engage and just even for that moment, come face to face with it and with yourself. You might cringe at your choice, but at least you're not alone. And you can see that you're not alone, so, right? So, so these contributions, as we're a part of the art. It can be difficult to acknowledge your pride in such an open, public way, but it can also be transformative. You know, we are in community around these difficult emotions. I think... One of the biggest things that happens is we are able to relinquish the idea that some of us are good and deserving of good things, and some of us are bad and deserving of bad things. And I feel like when we let that go and we recognize that all of us do good and bad things, all of us have innocence, all of us have harmful behaviors, then we can begin to get curious with each other. Well, then what is our way forward together? We actually stop looking at each other to find out what is bad and wrong in the other and instead are able to look at each other with eyes of love and curiosity. What needs healing here? What needs attention here? What is our way forward together? 
Thank you for listening to Season 2 of Awaken, a podcast from the Rubin Museum that explores the dynamic path to enlightenment and what it means to wake up. I'm singer and songwriter Ravina Arara. You just heard author and activist Adrian Marie Brown, Buddhist teacher and scholar Zogchen Panlap Rinpoche, psychologist and neuroscientist Tracy Dennis Tiwari, author and Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg, author and Zen priest Ruth Ozeki, and 10-year-old Nora Wood. Awaken is produced by the Rubin Museum of Art in collaboration with Sound Made Public. Music produced by Alexis Cuadrado and Hannes Brown, with some additional tracks from Blue Dot Sessions. You can continue the conversation by following us on Instagram at Rubin Museum. And if you're enjoying this podcast, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about the conversation you just heard. This is episode two of a seven-part series inspired by the Mandala Lab at the Rubin Museum, an immersive space for social, emotional, and ethical learning. Come explore the lab in New York City or in one of the installations that is traveling the world. Visit rubinmuseum.org to learn more about the museum and about the art, cultures, and ideas of Himalayan regions. We look forward to seeing you soon.